Hi everyone, welcome to our webinar, Extraordinary Cases in Extraordinary Times. We're going to be discussing EB1, A and B, along with EB2 National Interest Waivers and O1s. We're going to get started in just a few minutes as we get everyone on board. And just as a reminder, a recording of this webinar is going to be sent to everyone who registered today. It'll also be available on our website and is going to be published as a bonus episode on our podcast, Statutes of Liberty. If you haven't downloaded the podcast, please do so. Um, it is available on the App Store. Our speakers today are going to be me, Anu Nair. I'm a partner here at Clasco. Um, I also have with me Andrew Zeltner and Ali Dempsey. Welcome, everyone. Good afternoon. Hello, all. So I hope you are able to see my screen, as I'm sure many of you are also dealing with working from home. Um, we are also working from home and separated while we are doing this webinar. And I will be the first to admit that I am terrible at anything related to computers. So if you see any technical difficulties, completely my fault. Um, so let's get started. I think the number one question in a lot of people's mind is how does COVID-19 impact us, um, especially for EB1, EB2 processing times, O1 processing times. Right now, the government has shut down all in-person appointments with USCIS. So that means if you had an interview, those were canceled. If you had biometrics appointment to take your fingerprints and photos, that was canceled. If you had InfoPass appointments to get stamps on your passport, those were canceled. However, USCIS has assured us that they continue accepting new applications and are continuing to process the currently pending applications. And we have seen evidence of this. We continue to see approvals and sometimes requests for evidence on EB1, EB2, and O1 cases. However, I don't know what the long-term impact is going to be on adjudication timelines. I think right now it's a little too early to tell of how this is going to affect cases moving forward. But as of right now, we still continue to see cases being processed. I'm sure everyone on this call knows that premium processing has unfortunately been um, stopped for the moment. And Drew and Ali will go into it a little bit later about why, you know, most of the time we don't recommend premium processing for our extraordinary ability and outstanding researcher cases anyway. But for right now, what this means is that you cannot pay that extra fee to get your cases adjudicated in 15 calendar days. Right now, you're going to have to go the full timeline. And as I mentioned before, I don't know what the timeline is going to be. Um, and that's something that we're going to keep an eye out for. So one of the biggest issues about this COVID-19 effect is that a lot of people have had to work from home. And um, we've gotten a lot of calls about um, O1s who may either now have to work from home or have been furloughed, um, or if they were artists, they have gigs that they can no longer play, and how that's going to impact their O1s. For the most part, the O1s are different than the H1Bs that have to meet all of the requirements in the labor conditions applications. O1s don't necessarily have that. 
So for the most part, all of the cases that um, where the clients have reached out to me, we've been able to advise them that what they've been doing have been fine and kind of come up with plans and strategies of how to prove these issues when it comes time for their extension of status. Now, Drew and Ali, I know you've had a few clients that have reached out to you for these maintenance of status issues. What kind of questions have you guys been seeing? Well, Anu, um, you know, with regards to myself, uh, I represent some uh, ballet dancers, for example. And of course, you know, no one can gather in theaters right now. So they're simply unable to perform. And, you know, the question really, you know, arises if you're not being paid, if you're not performing, are you maintaining status, right? And, and the questions I have received surround, you know, whether they should file a change of status to be, for example, or, you know, when we turn to filing their extension of status, if we decide to file as an extension of status, you know, will the immigration service be lenient in how they adjudicate those um, extension of status cases? Because, of course, these are also folks who don't feel safe getting on a plane. In many cases, they can't fly to their home countries anyway because you know their their countries are are, are closed down. Um, so it's it's a real issue. I I hope we see some leniency from USCIS on the extension of status issue, but you know I don't know that I would bet on it. And and I think that's a a great point, Drew. Of you know we are going to argue um, that cis should be lenient but we're not sure we can't guarantee exactly how they're going to come down this is one of the areas where i would say it's really important to reach out to your immigration attorney if you have any kind of changes in your status it's going to be a little difficult for us to go through all of the different variations and try to give any sort of advice on a webinar but again it's one of the things where attorneys have been able to advise clients on how to proceed but again we would need to know all of the details. Right, now the next right. kind of um, thing that's come into play is the executive order. Um, I'm sure uh, some of you have read it where they have suspended green card processing outside of the United States, which means that consulates overseas are no longer issuing immigrant visas for a period of about 60 days. Now, the reason why this is not going to impact most of the clients who this webinar is for is that one, O-1 visas are not impacted um, in the sense that you can continue to get extensions of status while you're in the U.S. If you are getting an O-1 for the first time and you're trying to get a visa stamp overseas, that's going to be a little bit um, difficult because a lot of consulates or most consulates are still closed right now except for emergency appointments. With respect to our EB-1, EB-2 clients, most of our clients are in the United States, either on an O-1 or an H-1B visa. And so if they're in the U.S. on those visas, they can file the I-140 without a problem. And then if their priority date is current and they have an I-140 approval, they can go ahead and file for adjustment of status. So the executive order does not prevent people from seeking their green cards while they are in the United States. And so for the most part, our clients and people we know that are pursuing EB-1, EB-2s have not really been impacted by this executive order. However, we don't know what's coming down the pike here. So as of right now, we have, we've been advising clients about um, being cautious when they're traveling. We don't know if there's going to be any 
um, additional bans that are coming down. Right now, thankfully, most people can't travel. Um, but if you are traveling in the next 60, 90 days, it's really important that you reach out to your attorneys and make sure that they know that you're traveling and they can advise you based on the latest information we currently have. Right. And I would just add, Anu, that even if we if we think that visa appointments, for example, may open up in June or July, that doesn't necessarily assure that you'll be able to obtain a visa appointment in June or July based on the, you know, the, the pent up demands, um, you know, appointments may not be available until later in the fall. So I think that, you know, again, causes some uh, you know caution when traveling uh, because those appointments um, simply might not be available uh, and are also subject to cancellation as well, obviously, based on how, uh, how the news develops. That's a great point, Drew, and I completely agree, especially, you know, we're not doctors, so we don't know what the timeline is going to be, but if there's another shutdown later this year, there could be more suspension of um, visa processing, both non-immigrant and immigrant visas. So right, especially, with, right. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, especially if we have a, a rerun or if there's a, you know, a, re, um, a rerun of COVID later on in the fall or, or wintertime, then, you know, certainly things right now, I would just say, are, are always subject to change at the embassy these days. Right. So now that we've gotten kind of the hot topic out of the way, um, Ali, I'm going to turn to you to go take us through the, um, the steps of the uh, or the EB1, um, EB two and O1 processes. Great, thank you, Anu. Um, so on this slide, we have a general depiction of the hierarchy um, of difficulty as it applies to the cases we are discussing today. So at the top of the top, we have the EB1A extraordinary ability. And this is the pinnacle of um, difficulty for an I-140 immigrant visa petition. It requires the most documentation and the highest level of achievement for adjudication. As we progress down the pyramid, we see the EB1B, Outstanding Researchers and Professors, which is similar but not quite to the same level as the EB1A. And then the EB2 National Interest Waiver, which brings you down into a lower preference category, but is still a high evidentiary threshold because it requires or permits a waiver of the job requirement. The bottom of the pyramid is the O1 non-immigrant classification, which is among these categories, the easiest to obtain, although it is still a high evidentiary burden. And one important consideration when comparing the O1 to the other items on the pyramid is just the benefit being sought is at a slightly lower level um, than of course the green card. The O1 being a temporary visa is a lesser benefit and therefore has a slightly lower adjudicatory bar. Right now, Ali, if I'm deciding between EB1 and EB2, for example, the let's say extraordinary ability or national interest waiver, do I have to pick one? Do I have the option to do more than one? That's a great question, Drew. Um, and you are always eligible um, to file multiple petitions if that is something that is beneficial in your case, which could give you multiple options or routes to approval. Um, some considerations include where you are in your career. Um, so if you have a higher level of achievement and an EB1 is easy, easier for you to obtain, uh, it may make sense to go all in on the EB1. But if you have some variability, uh, an EB2 can be an excellent backup. 
And also we want to consider country of origin um, and priority date availability. So if you're an EB2, um, you may be subject to greater backlogs, for instance, than if you were looking at an EB1. So there can be multiple paths pursued at the same time, depending on a number of factors. Right. And conversely, I would say if you are current, um, you may just want to choose the path of least resistance and file in the EB2 category if we think the case is, uh, is close. Yes, absolutely. So, um, Ali, can you take us through the type of evidence that we would need for all of the cases that you mentioned for EB1, A and B, EB2 and O1s? Absolutely. So because of the commonalities between these categories, um, a lot of the evidence that we review is the same or very similar to one another. On this slide, we have some of the items that we see most commonly, which includes original contributions of major significance to the field, publications, which would include peer review manuscripts um, or uh, conference publications, as the case may be. Discussion of your work by others in the field, which can include media attention, citation, review articles, or other similar evidence. Service as a judge of the work of others, which can include peer review, grant review, conference committee planning, any kind of um, internal supervision if you are in a managerial role, grand rounds if you're a physician or a medical educator, um, or any similar work where you're judging others in your field. Uh, critical or essential employment with prestigious organizations, awards, memberships, and a higher salary. It is also important to note that a lot of the items listed in this slide um, are very easily applicable to scientific or medical professionals, um, but there are other classifications or types of evidence rather um, that are more amenable to individuals in the arts, in business, or in athletics, um, and we do have experience with those types of cases as well. So as Ali mentioned, a lot of the evidence is very similar for EB1, EB2, um, and for O1 cases. But each category is going, there are some specific standards that um, USCIS is looking for. And if you remember Ali's chart where she discusses the hierarchy of difficulty, this is where that difference kind of comes into play. So when we're evaluating a case for an EB1A or eb um, 1B or an EB2 national interest waiver, these are sort of the, the factors that we're looking at. So for the extraordinary ability, which tends to be the most difficult one to obtain, you have to show that you're kind of near the top small percentage at the top of your field and that you have sustained national international acclaim or recognition in the field. Um, a lot of people get really worried that if they don't have uh, a Nobel Prize that they're not going to fall within this category. That's not really true. They're not looking for people that are just going to be the, the type that uh, win these one-off awards. We can use a variety of the different categories that Ali mentioned, at least three, but a variety of the different categories to show that someone falls within this extraordinary ability. And that can be through heavy citations to their work, it can be through the fact that, let's say, if they're a hairdresser, they've been um, interviewed by multiple magazines or, um, you know, are the primary hairdressers for certain fashion shows. There's a whole lot of different ways that we can combine that together to show that someone is at the top of their field 
regardless of what field it is. Now, one of the things that we always try to do when we're trying to show that someone is at the top of the field is narrowly define the field. So I wouldn't necessarily want to say that someone is fantastic in biochemistry because that's a really large field. So one of the most important things to do when you're thinking about an EB1A is try to narrow down your field because that may make it just slightly easier to show um, that you're at the top of your field. Now with the EB1B, which is our outstanding professors and researchers, we have to show that they're recognized internationally. Um, and it's, I think Drew is going to cover this later on in our webinar, but when we're talking about EB1Bs and we're um, getting reference letters from a number of people, we do want to show a nice mix of people maybe domestically who know of this um, foreign national who's seeking this uh, category and a few from international sources as well to show that this person is internationally recognized. And now one of the, the criteria for this particular category is we want to show about three years of experience in teaching or researching in this particular field. Now I have seen some cases where someone started maybe their PhD research in one field and then switched over to another field. And so their, um, the supporting documentation that they have don't necessarily fit because now we have maybe a number of articles in field A, but we have reference letters from field B. It's really important that the field is the same if we're showing outstanding professors and researchers unless we can expand the field a little bit more to encompass both of those categories. This tends to be very rare. I don't see it often, and the few times that I have seen it, it tends to be with someone who maybe um, went to school for chemistry and then ended up doing um, just a slightly different field um, within chemistry. Um, so it's just, it's, it's one of those things to kind of um, keep in mind. The National Interest Waiver, this is one of my favorite categories, I will say. Uh, a lot of people um, usually tend to um, fit quite nicely within this category. You have to show that it's an advanced, you have an advanced degree or an exceptional ability. And to show exceptional ability, you have to show that you are, um, your expertise is above those that are normally encountered within the field. So it's not quite the same level as EB1A and EB1B. What's most important for the National Interest Waiver is that we have to show what the person is doing is of national importance to the United States. So um, that a lot of people get scared away from it because they think that maybe what they're doing no one really, um, it's not going to help the entire U.S. as a whole, but that's not necessarily true. You don't have to be a scientist with breakthrough patents to qualify for an EB2 national interest waiver. We've had horticulturalists that have qualified under this. We've had um, people in the business field that have qualified under this. You just have to show that what you're going to be doing is going to affect the nation as a whole. Um, the one thing that Ali mentioned, the difference between the EB1 and EB2 and why a lot of people choose one over the other 
could be because of these evidentiary standards, but it's also for processing times. EB2 does have a significant backlog for a lot of Indian nationals and Chinese nationals, and there's a less of a backlog in EB1. And so when we have clients that come to us, they want to try both. EB2 national interest waiver may be slightly easier, but they also want a shot at EB1A or EB1B because if they are successful in that, their um, wait times for the visas may be significantly reduced. Now, Anu, what if, what if I don't have an employer who's willing to sponsor me? Are these EB1 and EB2 categories relevant if I don't have an employer that is willing to sponsor the process and sign the documentation? So it does come into play as one of the um, requirements. So for an EB1A, you don't need an employer to sponsor you. You can self-sponsor an EB1A. For an EB1B, you do need an offer letter from an employer who is saying that they're going, there's a, a full-time position available for you. Um, and similarly for an EB2 national interest waiver, you do need to show that you're going to be continuing working in the field. So you do need an offer letter, um, but you can self-sponsor for the most part. And we will be discussing later on of how to choose between EB1 and EB2. And part of the consideration is going to be, will you have an employer that is going to assist you in this process? Because that is going to be one of the things that will help determine um, whether or not you choose EB1 or EB2 as your category. So let's say that you, you know that you want to do an EB1 or an EB2, but you're not quite there yet, or you have a visa um, wait time that, you're, that you won't be able, eligible to get your green card. A lot of our clients for EB1 and EB2 actually start out with a non-immigrant version of the EB1 and EB2, which is the O1 visa. So for the O-1 visa, um, again, it's if you remember Ali's, uh, Ali's chart or pyramid, O-1s is, is kind of at the bottom. It's one of the easier ones out of the, out of the um, multiple options that we've presented um, because it is a non-immigrant visa. So you are looking at people who are of either national or international recognition. So for, for O1s, um, I would say that, um, you know, it usually is a stepping stone for an EB1 and EB2. And a lot of instances when I've done consult for an EB1 and EB2, they may not necessarily meet all of the requirements or have um, gained as much acclaim to qualify for an EB1 or EB2, but they may be eligible for an O-1 and then can build their portfolio so that they do become eligible in the future for an EB-1 or EB-2. I'm not a big fan of getting resumes or CVs and saying, no, they're not eligible. I think it's, it's a great idea to work with your attorney to see if you're right, of, right on the cusp of what can kind of push you um, over that threshold in order for you to become eligible for EB1 and EB2. And I know I do talk quite a lot, so 
Um, I apologize for that. Ali, I'm going to turn to you again now. Um, if you can take us through kind of the analysis of um, how USCIS adjudicates these petitions and what they're looking for in their documentation. Absolutely. So for each of these classifications, um, USCIS typically sets a benchmark that's based on the regulation for how many different types of evidence they would like to see. Using the EB1A extraordinary ability as an example, um, and I think as Anu mentioned before, USCIS is looking for three out of the various options um, in terms of number of different criteria established to determine eligibility. That is the first part of the analysis in these cases, that purely numerical assessment of whether you meet the various regulatory criteria. And again, there's a wide array of options available there in terms of publications, original contributions, uh, discussion of your work in the form of citations or articles, um, or any of the other um, evidentiary uh, criteria that we discussed earlier. But there is a second step of the analysis that applies to EB1 and EB2 national interest waiver cases. And that is the overall merits assessment, which I believe Anu is on the next slide. There we go. Thank you. So the second uh, step of the assessment is based on case law from several years ago that established that USCIS should make this final merits determination when adjudicating an EB1 or a national interest waiver case. So what happens is if a petition is filed and the USCIS adjudicator determines that the requisite number of evidentiary criteria were satisfied, they will then take a global view of the case. Both steps of this analysis can trigger a request for evidence or an RFE, but the second step is highly subjective and is therefore where we see a majority of the RFEs. This two-step analysis is explicitly applied in the permanent residence process to EB1s and national interest waivers. But we also see that there is a similar dual analysis applied in O1 non-immigrant adjudications, even though it's not the same explicit test, we see the same types of adjudications come through. So when you prepare a case, it's important to keep both of these things in mind. You want to make sure that you're meeting enough criteria, of course, to satisfy eligibility for the benefits sought, but also build an overall narrative of the case that will help present the overall merits in a clear way for the adjudicator. So you mentioned that um, there's a two-step analysis and that both parts can trigger an RFE. I know recently we have seen a slight increase in the RFEs. Um, if you can kind of take us through the RFE trends and how we can possibly prevent an RFE. Certainly. Um, so as Anu mentioned, we have seen an uptick in RFEs, um, and this is somewhat universal across immigration benefits uh, in the present time. And it's really difficult to fully avoid RFEs, no matter how strong a case is from the outset. However, um, there are ways to approach cases with recent RFE trends in mind. Uh, for instance, in O1 adjudications of late, we are seeing a lot of questions regarding the significance of achievements across the board, 
the significance of peer review, the significance of publications. So when we're preparing a case, it's important to provide a lot of context and detail for the immigration officer to use so that they can fully understand and assess the information that's being provided. And while we cannot avoid these requests for evidence, and it is frustrating and can make the adjudications take longer, um, we are in very successful in overcoming these RFEs. So what are some recent RFEs that you've seen? So recently we have seen a lot of these um, requests for additional context about impact factor, um, why the individual specifically has been selected for work, um, what it is about their specific accomplishments and their CV that makes them uh, the most uh, appropriate resource to engage in any of these professional activities, uh, be it peer review or conference participation. Um, why was it you as opposed to somebody else that's in your peer group? Right. And I also see that with regards to citations as well. The Immigration Service will question the meaningfulness of the citation, right? So if we're pointing out to citations, I think we really need to explain, you know, the relevance and why the cite is, is meaningful in the context of the entire theory of the, of the filing. Right. And I, and I also have seen some what I think is really ridiculous RFEs where it I call them the kitchen sink RFEs. It's as if they didn't have enough time to look at the entire petition. So they come back and they list every single regulation back and just ask us to present the same type of evidence that was previously presented. So for example, there was one recently where the government argued that um, I think one of the categories was with respect to a compensation and we were able to show that the foreign national was making about 25% more based on the um, uh, the wage data from the Department of Labor. The government came back and said the documentation that you provided wasn't sufficient and gave us a link to the uh, to the wage data from the Department of Labor that we had actually included in the petition. So. I don't know what's happening. It does seem to be kind of, as Ali mentioned, across the board, not just related to EB1, EB2, or O1s, but there does seem to be kind of some confusion when these RFEs are issued, um, where it's, it's as if they don't understand it fully themselves. It's a little bizarre. Yeah, and I think, too, we kind of also have to take a step back and remember the adjudicatory environment that we're in, right? I mean, this is not, of course, a friendly administration, and I think oftentimes their goal is to issue as many RFEs as possible. Right. So just merely receiving an RFE is not something that is, you know, necessarily abnormal in, uh, in, you know, in these times. Um, and, and I had a recent filing, um, you know, an EB-1 that where I received an RFE where they questioned, you know, my use of the high salary requirement with an individual who is making over $300,000 a year and right. also indicated in the RFE that their own, you know, Department of Labor OES wage data was not sufficient evidence for me to um, for me to hang my hat, uh, if you will, on, on, you know, high salary, right? And, and that my... Uh, my client had a high salary so it it's you know some of the rfes are are you know are silly but i think that kind of stems from the fact that the adjudicators are being told to um to issue them agreed 
Yes, I agree as well. And I think it's also important to remember um, in the context of RFEs, your audience. So even outside of the political climate, we are always mindful that we're presenting cases to USCIS uh, adjudicators who are not necessarily expert in your field. Uh, so in that regard, it's also important to provide a strong background uh, and a lot of context for work so that the adjudicator is well positioned to understand uh, all of this wonderful work that's been done and why it is important. Right. Absolutely right. And in many cases, I mean, the, the adjudicator is not a professional, right? We're not writing to a scientific audience. We're not writing to a professional audience. We cannot, you know, prepare these cases as if, um, you know, you're, you're writing something that's going to be published in a high-level journal, right? In many cases, you know, in most cases, really, the adjudicators are lower-level uh, lower bureaucrats that may not even have, um, you know, a baccalaureate degree. So we really need to drive home the importance of the work, but in a way that is really readily accessible to a layperson. Because if we draft the support letters and, and the statements like they're being published um, you know, in a high-level journal, it's just not going to be understood by the adjudicator at all, and we're not going to get our point across. So one final note before we move on um, is just to revisit the idea of premium processing um, and why it is something that we usually do not recommend. Um, you know, as Anu noted, premium processing is currently suspended due to COVID-19. Um, but even in the best of times, it's not recommended because it prompts USCIS to adjudicate a case within 15 calendar days. Um, premium processing is normally available in the EB1A and the O1 context here, so it's not available in every category. But what we have to think about when assessing premium processing as an option in one of those categories is the volume of the filing that we're asking immigration to adjudicate in 15 days. So if we're submitting hundreds of pages and then asking an officer who has many other cases to not only consider this in 15 days, but consider it well, um, it is a really hard request. And that is why we see a high RFE rate when premium processing is selected. Right, but uh, but Ali, everyone wants the premium process, right? Everyone wants that fast decision. Um, but I guess what we're saying is that is not always in your interest. Absolutely. And if we get a request for evidence, uh, we are necessarily drawing out the process in response. So we could try for that quick response. Um, but if that quick response is an RFE, you know, it's going to take us some time to respond um, and it's going to draw the process out longer anyway. So sometimes it's just not the best idea. Right. And for the most part, especially for EB1, EB2 cases, there is a visa backlog. And even if chart B is being used, you know, we're not sure if, if you're if the applicant is going to be even eligible. So that's something you definitely want to take a look at um, when you are deciding whether or not to do premium processing, because you may be spending the extra money to, as Ali put it, to buy an RFE for kind of no end result, where even if you get an approval, you may not necessarily be able to file an adjustment of status um, anytime soon. So you want to take those considerations also when you are deciding for premium processing. Right now, you don't have that option, but in the future. So, um, Ali, I think we have made people really sad by all of these RFE talks. So if you can take us through some of the, the uh, bright line rules that we have. Yes, absolutely. 
Um, so for the most part, even considering the political climate that we're in and the pandemic climate that we're in, um, we haven't seen adjudications in these EB1 and national interest categories be hit quite as hard um, by new policy developments over the last few years. Uh, for the most part, um, you know, because the evidentiary burdens are so high, individuals applying in these categories are well credentialed um, and people that are strong, highly desirable by the United States. Um, so we see that these adjudications, albeit maybe a bit slower, um, continue to progress somewhat normally. And although we do see requests for evidence, we continue to have a very high success rate in responding to these requests across all of these categories we're being discussed today. Perfect. And so, Drew, I know that when we get consultations, there are some very common questions that repeatedly come up during these consultations. So can you take us through what type of questions most clients are asking for and most listeners here should be considering when they are evaluating these options? Sure. So I think, you know, the, the biggest question that I find that we get during these consultations are what are my chances of success? Right. Are we going to are we going to succeed? And, you know, what I will say about our firm, what I think that makes us a little bit unique is we have a segment of the firm, of course, which Anu leads that does nothing but these cases. Right. And I believe, you know, we filed over 100 last year. So we we see the trends at USCIS. We see what's working. We see what you know, what doesn't work. And I think we have a process that works very, very well because we kind of start with making our clients complete a very long questionnaire. Um, and that's not to annoy them. It's because we want to understand your field and know as much as we can so we can advocate for you. So I think, you know, our internal processes really make sure that we that, that no stone, um, you know, if you will, is left unturned when we begin uh, when we begin a case. And I think every case has to tell a story, right? The adjudicator has to get it. So I think the way we prepare our cases with our reference letters, and I'll talk a little bit about that, we, we, we take the adjudicator through all of the relevant regulatory requirements and really take them on the road to get to yes. Um, so I think our, you know, our internal processes help and, and frankly, the time we take on each case to, to paint the picture is what uh, has made our success rates, um, you know, as, as high as they are. Um, and so this is a question that you had previously posed about employer sponsorship and how to determine which option is right for you based on whether or not you do have an employer. Right. So, so I'm kind of mindful of time here as well. I want to leave enough time for questions, so I'll go pretty swiftly. Um, but of course, you know, which road we go down is going to be determined on whether you have an employer sponsor or not. Obviously, we can't consider outstanding researcher, for example, if there isn't an employer sponsor. So I think at a baseline level, we'll, we'll assess that and then, you know, decide which road to take. Um, there's no black, you know, black and white answer to how many publications, you know, do I need? I mean, I would say as a rule, we're most comfortable with, you know, two first author publications. I think we like to see that as a minimum. I'm not saying that's required in every case, but that's what we like to see. And of course, the quality of the journals um, where the where you're published in, the impact factors are, are certainly, you know, very relevant. 
Um, you know, there's not, a, again, a set salary either. Um, you know, obviously, I'm not going to object if the salary is higher. Um, but, you know, but you you don't need to be at a certain salary level to do one of these cases. Um, same thing with regards to the job title. The job title is not, you know, in and of itself. Um, you know, that important, um, although I wouldn't want to see, if, you know, for example, uh, the word junior in a job title, right, or something like that that could be undermining. Um, but, you know, your title does not have to be, uh, you know, chief medical officer, uh, you know, in order to do one of these cases. Um, You've mentioned a few times about um, referees and um can you talk a little bit more about what what foreign nationals should be looking at when they're trying to determine who should be a referee um, and, um, you know, sure. kind of reaching out to them? Absolutely. I, I think the reference letters really form the foundation of the house, if you will, when we're doing one of these cases. Um, I, I think they are critically important. I think typically we like to have four or five reference letters. And I think the key with regards to your referees, number one, is diversity, right? We wouldn't want to do a case where we have four letters and every letter writer is, is from an academic institution in Philadelphia, right? That doesn't show a diversity of scope um, and is not helpful to the case. Uh, the other thing with regards to letters is I think independence is, is critical, right? I think the common mistake we see, and we're often asked to take over cases that have been denied or where uh, applicants have withdrawn them because they've received very nasty RFEs. And I think the one thing the Immigration Service really hones in on is the independence of the referee. So for example, someone will choose their thesis advisor um, to be a referee, not smart, right? Or someone who has, you know, you've worked with for, for 10 years. Again, not smart. Immigration will say that person knows you, they're prejudiced, um, and they will discount their opinion. I, I think, frankly, from what I've seen, it's so much more powerful to say, you know, I don't know Dr. Smith, but I read his publication regarding X, Y, and Z, and it's valuable in my work for these reasons. Or I heard Dr. Smith speak at this conference, and you know, it had an impact on me or my group's research for these reasons. I think that's the home run. If we can draw draw out that kind of evidence, I think that is is you know carries the most weight and is most meaningful to USCIS. That's what gets me really excited. I think the uh, the common mistake is to say, you know, I've worked next to this person. You know, I know them and you know immigration you know will say okay you 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 were the thesis advisor clearly you like them but that doesn't really help us to determine um, if we should approve an EB1 on their behalf. I agree Drew and I think this is tends to be one of the more difficult portions for a lot of foreign nationals where they're hesitant to reach out to people that they haven't worked with or they haven't done research with but it's really important it it um, strengthens the case because the government can has documentation right there that says these other leaders in the industry don't know our client as foreign national who's seeking an EB1, EB2, but they know of their work. That's how important their work is. So it's really important to get these objective reference letters. Um, so one of the other kind of issues that comes up frequently is, you know, a lot of our clients, they may have graduated recently in terms of four, five, six years. They may be secondary, tertiary authors on research papers, or they may, may, may not even appear on grants. 
So how can those types of research and grants evidence be used in support of EB1, EB2 cases? Right. Well, I think that's where we can really utilize the letters to bring that to bring those contributions to the fore. And I think when we look at the letters, you know, as I mentioned, we'll typically draft four to five letters, and and you know, typically we'll do you know one longer letter where we go through all of the regulatory criteria and make our case. I think with the most impressive referee. And then in the three to four shorter letters, we'll hone in on a specific aspect of work. So typically we would use one of those shorter letters, for example, to talk about a publication or um, a patent or, or peer review to focus in on that. And I think we, where, where, where that type of contribution is not readily apparent, we can utilize the reference letters to bring all of that evidence into play and, and make it a little bit more real for the adjudicators so they're not just looking at the name on you know on a particular publication or, or grant for example and they can really gauge the practicality of the contribution by what the referee is is stating in the letter so I think you know when we look at the five letters as a whole we really we don't look at them as individual letters we look at the five kind of holistically and say you know what what purpose is each letter serving and how do we tell the whole story of all of the work and all of the evidence that we want to bring in and that's why I think you know from square one, our questionnaire is such a critical document that we spend a lot of time with each uh, individual on because we get to understand that information and how we want to present them in the letter and who we want um, signing those letters, right? So we, we will work with you very intensively to determine who are the best four or five people to write on your behalf because that's such an important decision as we go forward. I think, Drew, you made a very good point about, you know, uh, not only in this slide, but a previous slide where you talked about kind of um, remembering who the audience of this petition is. It's not a journal. It's not a fellow colleague. It's a USCIS officer. So when you have referees who um, are at the top of their field in a well-known institution who in pretty layman's terms is able to explain what your research is, you have now objective evidence. It's not just randomly written in an attorney cover letter without any kind of idea or reference. It's by someone else in the field who's able to explain what you do in pretty simple terms. Um, right, absolutely. Right, absolutely. And, and we take great care, by the way, in, in drafting those letters as well. Um, you know, oftentimes I think, you know, people are told by others, you know, you go out and, and, and get the reference letter signed yourself, right, without any idea of what's supposed to be in the reference letter. Right. So, you know, a great amount of time working working with our clients to go through, you know, multiple drafts of these reference letters to make sure that they encompass the, the strongest points for the case. So when a client comes to you um, for a consultation and is deciding between an O1, EB1, EB2, um, and they're deciding if it's the right time for them to file, what are the factors that they should be considering in order to make that determination? Well, I think that as an initial step, we have to go through the list of requirements that Ali talked about earlier, right? And I think we, what I like to do is kind of do that initial self-Kazarian analysis, right? So if I was the immigration officer, how would I feel about this case? Um, how many of the regulatory criteria are we comfortable uh, advocating for in the petition? 
Right. So I, I think we have to make that determination initially. Um, you know, and on occasion, I have said to folks, look, you know, maybe now is not the, the best time. Maybe take, you know, six months to a year and, and do some peer review, buttress the resume a little bit. I think it's a, a hyper individual type determination. Um, but we have to, I think, feel comfortable with that, that we will satisfy enough regulatory criteria um, and, and we can go forward from there. Um, but I think that's kind of the kind of the baseline. So, um, you know, as kind of the last sort of considerations, uh, it kind of goes into everything that we've covered so far of how to decide between an EB1A, EB1B or national interest waiver, um, if that's going to be the best fit for you in terms of seeking uh, permanent residency in the U.S. There's a few things you want to consider as a reminder. The first is your country of birth or the applicant's country of birth, because that can determine when they become eligible for their visa. And if they're eligible under an EB2, which has an easier kind of standard of, of evidence, it you may want to seek that. But if they have a long wait under EB2, you may want to set them up to try to um, get that EB1. You also want to take a look, as Drew and Ali both mentioned, overall strength of the evidence. So if you have an exceptionally strong case, go for that EB1A. That may be the fastest option for a lot of people. But if your evidence is not that strong, you may want to look at other options like an EB2. Or you may want to hold off and wait to build your portfolio until you do qualify under one of those categories. And then finally, you have to determine whether or not an employer is going to assist you either by sponsoring or giving you a job offer letter to confirm that there is an opportunity available for you. And then really quickly for an O-1, it kind of makes me sad that a lot more people don't look at O-1 as an option. For the most part, people only turn to an O-1 when there are other issues. So if there's a scientist who has an H-1B, they maxed out, they don't have an I-140 either um, filed or pending, so they can't get that AC-21 extension, that they turn to an O-1 as an alternate option that allows them to stay in the United States because there's no six-year limit on the O-1 and you can continue renewing it as long as um, you qualify. Um, the others is for a lot of uh, physicians or scientists who have the J-1 and who are subject to the two years uh, home residency requirement, an O-1 is an option for them to work in the United States before kind of meeting those two-year residency requirement or while they're looking to get a waiver of that two-year residency. But those shouldn't be the only people who look at O-1s. There are um, people overseas who've never stepped foot in the U.S., so don't have to worry about H-1s or J issues that should be looking at O-1s as a viable option for them. And it's again, it's not limited to just scientists, which I think a lot of people have misconceptions that an O-1 or EB-1, EB-2 is limited to, um, to scientists or artists. It can be almost anyone in any field. So it's really important to look at this as a possible option. Now, we don't have much time, but I do have a number of questions. Um, so the first question is going to be, um, do you expect a biometric 
appointment cancellations will affect the timeline for 765 and I-131s. Well, I, I think for the most part, Anu, right, immigration is trying to use previously submitted yep. biometric to just continue processing, right? That's exactly right. So they said if they had a previous biometrics on file, that they will use that and continue processing. But I don't want to say there may not be delays on the 765 and I-131s. It may not necessarily be due to the biometrics, but it could still be, uh, the timeline could still be affected. Um, we have another question about, a, um, I was born in Saudi Arabia, but I'm a citizen of Pakistan. Which country will be considered for your processing time? Um, Ali, do you want to take that? Certainly. Um, so when we are looking at your country of chargeability for your processing times, it is the country of birth. Um, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan do both fall under the all chargeabilities category, um, but in this instance, it would be Saudi Arabia. So I have a question here, um, and Ali, I think you briefly touched on this, but open to both of you. I've been on an O1 for three years. I'm working in the industry. I'm working, oh, they didn't specify what industry, but they did say they don't have any publications. Um, is that going to be a problem when they're applying for an extension? So I think this one it depends, right? Um, yeah. I would say I, I'm not 100% sure what industry they're in. If it's an industry that doesn't regularly have publications, it shouldn't be a factor for when applying for extension. But let's say you're a scientist, you are um, expected to be publishing in journals and you've had no journal publications for the last three years and you have um, no reasonable explanation for that. So, for example, if you're working on a grant from NIH and um, they are, you're not publishing anything for three years because you're making one big publication at the end, maybe that could work. But there's not enough information for us to answer that question. And I would just add, if you have professional accomplishments that you can cite, um, you know, that could also be something that, you know, that could be utilized. Um, you know, I had a case, for example, that I worked on an 01 extension for, for a surgeon, and, and he wasn't publishing, for example, but we had right. some really great patient success stories, um, you know, that I was able to highlight based on his reputation in the field. And, uh, you know, that sort of evidence was able to win the day. So, you know, not necessarily is what I would say. We would need to know more. Right. Yeah. I would also add that depending on the industry, there may be internal work that's being published, but not at a peer review level. So if there are mm -hmm. white papers or internal products that we can uh, maybe not disclose due to confidentiality, yeah. but um, discuss and explain, um, that can be an alternative as well. So the next question is, my EB-1B petition is approved. My priority date is April 2017, and I'm an Indian citizen. What is the approximate timeline I should expect to file the AOS? The answer to that would make me a lot of money if I knew. Yeah. You, you would have to check the, the visa bulletin um, as an initial starter. <laughs> Right. So right now, unfortunately, we're looking at May 2015 as the current visa cutoff date. And as you probably know, if you're talking to me about priority dates, we can't predict until the um, Department of State publishes their visa bulletin 
Um, and again, if USCIS does allow for Chart E and you're in the U.S., you could potentially file for adjustment of status earlier. But I don't think anyone can kind of answer, give you a definite answer on that. Um, another question, after filing for an O-1 extension application, does one receive an automatic extension, the 240-day rule? Yes, the 240-day rule applies to O-1s. Very succinct answer. Um, how long does it take um, for an O-1 application to be processed? So without premium processing, we were seeing, what, three to four months? I'm not sure what that's going to look like now. Right. I mean, I, I don't expect this crisis to make processing times any better. Let's put it that yeah. way. Agreed. Agreed. Um, okay, uh, last question that we'll be taking for today is, will medical clinic research um, in COVID-19 area and publications be considered highly for EB-1 approval for Indian origin physicians um, with good high-ranked journal publications? I don't think um, just being in the COVID-19 area alone is going to be sufficient for you to meet this requirement, but it definitely helps in um, maybe asking for an expedited adjudication, not premium processing, expedited adjudication by saying that it's an area that's extremely right. I think it kind of goes back to, to what Ali talked a little bit about earlier, which is regards to the, the meaningfulness of the contribution. Exactly. Right? So I don't think it's, it's enough to say COVID-19. It's what is the success? What is the outstanding or extraordinary research um, you know, that has assisted in the area? So that's kind of, I think, the, the bridge that we would need to cross. Right, exactly. So it's not just sufficient to, to say you're in this area. Unfortunately, that is all of our time today. If we have not answered any questions, we will send around an email with answers to your questions. Again, thank you everyone for attending today. We hope that you have found this information useful. If you have any additional questions that you weren't able to ask us today, um, please reach out to us. We'll be more than happy to assist and try to get you answers. Um, and let me scroll through. Uh, a recording of this webinar, as a reminder, is going to be available and is going to be emailed to everyone who registered. It's going to be available on our website and our podcast as well. We also regularly publish blogs, articles, news alerts. So if you do want access to those, please sign up for our emails at classicallaw.com. And you can follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. If you have any specific categories or topics that you do want us to cover, feel free to shoot us an email at podcast at classicallaw.com. And we do take a look at those to determine um, what our next series of webinars should be. Well, thank you so much, Ali and Drew, and thank you everyone for attending today. Pleasure. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you, everyone.